gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? We have a great show for you tonight. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Please go to thedispatch.com to check out our stuff and maybe um, become a fully paid member of the Dispatch community. I'll say it again. If everybody who listens to this podcast would, would give us a shot for one year, um, we would be able to, uh, we would double our subscribers. We would... Um, have a fully operational Death Star, but we wouldn't use Death Star the way Sonny Bunch endorses using Death Stars to uh, commit genocide. We would just use it as a peace through strength kind of thing. Um, anyway, I am um, uh, got a lot to talk about today, I guess. I think, I feel like I do. Um, maybe it's because I wrote a G file that I really didn't like very much. And I feel like I have to overcompensate for all the things I couldn't figure out how to. Um, write about. It's one of these weird quirks of my, um, adulpatedness. Um, but I'm actually going to start talking about uh, a different podcast. Uh, my friend Jay Nordlinger, former colleague of mine at national review, he does a podcast for ricochet. I think I mentioned this at the end of the, um, Elaine K Mark episode, um, this week, which I really, really liked, um, by the way, we can talk about that in a little bit. And, um, um, but I really enjoyed talking to Jay, and it was actually a conversation I had with him that inspired today's G-File, as you'll see. But that's not what I want to talk about right now, at least. Instead, I want to talk about like something that Jay does that um, kind of makes me think of my dad a little bit, um, insofar as um, my dad, you know, my dad was a longtime journalist and an editor, and he worked for... It's difficult to explain, you know, when I tell my people my dad was a newspaper man, um, but I don't think he worked in an actual newspaper per se for more than a few years his entire life. He worked for some, for uh, the North American News Alliance, and which then later became United Features Syndicate and then United Media, which was owned by Scripps Howard. And for people who don't know like the history of media stuff, um, newspaper syndicates were once a really, really big deal in terms of, um, their influence in, in newspapers because they would push out sort of like the way the associated press isn't a newspaper, but it's in every newspaper in the country. Um, that's what, in, in a sense, it's a news syndicate too. That's what my dad did for most of his career was, was manage writers, authors, columnists, cartoonists, that kind of thing. Um, and then that content would be shipped out to newspapers across the country. Um, and he did some writing on his own too, but he was mostly an editor and then later like an executive type. Um, but it's funny now that I'm at the dispatch doing this stuff, there's all this stuff that from my dad that, um, really ne never had sort of practical, um, impact on me. You know, my dad probably began 10% of all of his conversations. Uh, you know, it would make a really good piece. And he was talking about like a reported piece, you know, someone would go look in on something or figure something out. And I find all of a sudden, um, that's a sort of a weird sort of wax on wax off kind of training I got as a kid that, 
um, is becoming relevant again. And again, if everybody started, if we had a lot more uh, members of the dispatch, paid members, we could get a lot more reporters who could do some of these things that I keep floating. But right now we're so focused on, on sort of political coverage and that kind of thing that some of my ideas don't, um, we just don't have reporters who have the bandwidth right now to do it, even if they're interested in doing it. Um, and, you know, and the morning dispatch, which soaks up a lot of our reporting is really Steve's baby and Declan's. And, you know, I don't want to Bigfoot all over it, but I was saying the other day at our editorial meeting that I think it'd be a really good piece to, um, send someone to go find all the interesting innovations that have come out of the pandemic that aren't related to medicine. And, um, I got the idea because the other night uh, we ordered food in and, um, one of my great complaints about the pandemic era is that we've learned that, um, a lot of food just doesn't travel well. Uh, my favorite pizza place in DC, this place, two Amy's you eat in the restaurant when the pizza comes straight out of the oven and it's like among the best crust I've ever had. And I say that as a New Yorker, who's a jealous guardian of the, um, superiority of, of bread products like pizza crust and bagels of, of New York city, thanks to the upstate water system. I don't know if you guys can hear my dog barking, but, um, um, anyway, so we ordered food and it, the thing I ordered came with a side of fries and normally I ignore fries that get delivered. Or what I do is I put a tiny bit of oil on a pan and I kind of give them a quick refry because they get steamed when they're in the container and they lose their crispiness and like warm, you know, soggy fries are just awful. And if you could just sort of, I do the same thing with, with dumplings from Chinese places because they, the fried dumplings get kind of steamy and soggy is I just give them a quick refry to get some of the moisture out of them. And I was planning on doing that with the fries or just not eating them at all and discovered that um, this place, you know, near where I live, um, actually has, there's some new container thing that manages to keep the fry or maybe it's not the container. Maybe it's a technique, but the fries come and they're still, uh, crispy. And I was thinking there must be a lot of that kind of stuff. I mean, one thing I think is going to last beyond the pandemic are the, uh, the weird igloos that people are using to, for sitting outdoors. I mean, why not keep those for normal winters as well? If you can, I mean, it'd be you know, that's good space for restaurants. Anyway, I think, I, I just think there'd be an interesting piece to be done on all of the new innovations that necessity has created during the pandemic. And if you have suggestions of them, put them in the comments or email me, um, whatever, but that's actually not what I want to talk about. One of the things, one of my dad's big complaints about interviews on like meet the press and that kind of thing is that the interviewers never ask the kind of normal questions that normal people would love to ask somebody in good faith. And the thing I always remember was when Bob Kerry was running or talking about running for president, uh, not John Kerry, the other Kerry, Bob Kerry, the guy who was also a Vietnam vet, um, also a democratic Senator, but he was the one who lost his leg in a firefight. Um, I remember my dad saying when Tim Russert was interviewing him, you know, why can't he just ask him one question of like, what's it like to not have a leg? And, you know, that's the kind of question that a lot of people would like to hear. And I think that was actually one of the secrets of Larry King's success was he asked what to sophisticated people 
um, seemed like really dumb questions, but were actually the kind of questions that normal people are kind of curious about the answer to. And, um, and Jay, it turns out, is really good at asking just that kind of conversational question. And he was asking me about like what my favorite foods are and what I think about sports and all these kinds of things. And it was really refreshing. I mean, we also talked about serious stuff and you should listen to it if you're interested, but um, it was just surprisingly refreshing to be asked normal person questions. I do a fair bit of podcasts and it's usually about, you know, what is the future of the Republican Party or what would Bill Buckley think? Or, um, you know, what about, you know, what about this definition of fascism or, you know, was the French revolution, this, that, or the other thing. And I'm happy to have those conversations. This, this is the life I have chosen, but, um, it was just kind of fun to be asked normal questions. And, um, it was just kind of refreshing anyway. Um, what else to talk about? So speaking of my dad, um, um, and I should just say at the outset, I like talking about my dad. I don't like talking about my mom as much because she's so controversial to people. Um, but like when I'm not podcasting, I tell lots of stories about my mom too. And maybe one day I'll feel more comfortable about doing some of that kind of stuff because my mom is quite a character. Um, but, um, I was thinking about my dad this week because there's all this talk about finding life on Mars and people on Twitter about, you know, how huge it would be if they even found some single celled organism on Mars and what that would mean for the universe and all these kinds of things. And I think that's all interesting and important and fun, but it made me think of my dad because my dad would often tell me, you know, Jonah, it is far more likely that they would find on Mars or, or, or the moon or whatever, but I think it was Mars, um, a perfectly functioning pocket watch than a, um, than an amoeba. And his point wasn't that like Mars's climate couldn't sustain an amoeba. It was that a pocket watch is actually far less complicated than an amoeba or some other microscopic organism. Um, and he used to make this as an argument sort of about the existence of God. And, um, um, you know, as a grown up and a more serious person, I, what I liked about the point was I don't think my dad actually believed that as an objective fact that it was more likely to find a pocket watch on Mars than um, life. But he wanted, he, he liked to drop those kind of little weird bombs in my head to think about things from a different angle. And, um, and I think, you know, in reality, the, the life thing is probably more likely than, than the pocket watch because complexity is actually, um, I don't want to get all Hayekian about how evolution works and complexity builds on complexity in a non-zero sum way and all that, but it's an interesting way to think about things and, and it just keeps popping into my head. Um, and I don't want people to think that, you know, uh, I'm anti-science and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, when I make statements like that, but it's just interesting to me. So anyway, um, speaking of not following the science, um, I wrote my syndicated column this week, the one that came out today on the pandemic and this notion of following the science, you know, which is what Joe Biden campaigned on. And, um, and long before Joe Biden and the pandemic, this has been an increasingly popular, uh, mantra or trope or, 
talking point for liberals in the left, and not just on climate change, although obviously that's a big one. Um, I remember, was it the 2004, it must have been the 2004 Democratic Convention, how they, how the Democrats wanted to make uh, George W. Bush's position on stem cells um, uh, a liability for him. And um, which is fine if you're some pro-lifer and all these kinds of things. I mean, if you're, some, if you're a pro-choicer and, and, and you want maximum use of stem cells and all of that, and you have no ethical quandaries with it, I guess it's fair game to make it a political issue, um, even though i basically on the side of George W. Bush on that. Um, but the outrageous demagoguery, I remember, um, uh, what was this shiny pony's name? Uh, John Edwards talking about how, you know, if it weren't for George Bush, you could have, um, a life-saving kit underneath your bed that would let you regrow things or give you a new liver or whatever. I mean, it was all of this that the, the stem cell stuff was going to save people's lives and George W. Bush didn't want people's lives to be saved from stem cells. And we, the Democrats, follow science. And to me, the whole thing about saying science is on your side is very similar to um, saying God is on your side insofar as it's really, I mean, look, sometimes science is on your side and it clearly is, you know. Um, I think science is on the side of people say you should wear masks, you know, whatever. I mean, there's uh, science is on the side of vaccines. I'm not saying that science isn't on that, that science doesn't, um, lend itself to certain public policies. It, it obviously does. There are all sorts of laws of engineering that apply to infrastructure, right? What, how you build a dam. Well, part of that is about science and all that. I'm not, I'm not on some anti-science rant, but the, the problem with when politicians start talking about being on the side of silence, science, I wish they were on the side of silence, is that um, um, it invariably um, corrupts science to one extent or another. But it's also um, like the, you know, appeals to God. Um, it's a logical fallacy. It's an appeal, but you know, it's the fallacy of appeal to authority where you say, you know, uh, you can't eat string beans because God says so, or it doesn't have to be God. You can't eat string beans because Fred says so as if Fred has this dispositive wisdom that settles all questions. And, um, and it's, a, it's, 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 I mean, I wrote about this at length in my underrated book, Tyranny Clichés. It is a way of stealing an intellectual base. It's a way of avoiding um, an argument by just simply claiming that all truth and wisdom and expertise is on your side. And it's just, a, it's a double-edged sword. So Biden comes in and he says he's on the side of science and he's going to follow the science no matter what. And then, you know, within weeks of taking office, his CDC director invoking the latest science says that schools should reopen as quickly as possible because they're not um, particularly dangerous vectors for the spread of the pandemic. And meanwhile, science says uh, that the damage being done to kids by not going to school is pretty enormous and overwhelming. And the next day, you know, she said, what's her name? Rachel Walensky said this on a Wednesday and on a Thursday, Jen Psaki, the press secretary says, 
oh, she was just speaking in her personal capacity, um, which is just really kind of ludicrous when you think about it, um, because she, A, she wasn't, and B, the idea that in her personal capacity, she would say something about science that she wouldn't say in her professional capacity um, suggests that somehow there are different versions of what the science is depending upon, you know, the politics um, or the capacity of the person speaking. And, um, and it was clearly because the Biden administration has this thorny problem with teachers unions. And it's same thing with the, the Babbitt Abbott stuff in Texas. And I can't remember her name and uh, the governor's name, not her, that's Alabama the governor's name in Mississippi, but they lifted their mask mandates and their lockdowns, which truth be told, I think was something of a mistake. Um, I think we're so close with the vaccine that keeping it up for another couple of weeks, particularly given how Texas is doing pretty poorly in vaccination, um, probably makes sense. I think there was a lot of cynical politics where Abbott um, wants to change the subject from uh, the blackouts in Texas and also coming out of uh, CPAC, the, the fatwa has gone forth that um, DeSantis is this hero governor for defying the Orwellian uh, tyrannical uh, lockdowns and mask mandates. And that is the official position of, of true blue conservatives now and all this nonsense. Um, but at the same time, I think the people freaking out about it are kind of silly too. Uh, I don't think it's that terrible idea. I think it's a, close call in a lot of respects. Florida has not had mask mandates or lockdowns for a long time, and they've done better than New York, which was allegedly following the science when um, Andrew Cuomo wasn't following skirts. And, um, and certainly done better than California. And, uh, and moreover, you know, people, as I made this point on Special Report the other night, people have been habituated to it. Businesses have been habituated to it. The, most of the supermarkets in Texas are going to either require or strongly recommend that everyone still wear masks. Most stores are still going to require it. Most restaurants are going to require it. Allowing people to make their own calls is a legitimate thing for a politician to do at this stage, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and so you can be nuanced about all of this. And, uh, you know, claiming that if you disagree with Joe Biden about mask mandates, it means you're guilty of Neanderthal thinking, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. Um, is just it's 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 a, it's a way of using science as a cudgel to get policies that you want without actually making arguments for them, and and moreover, you know, look, I mean, just speaking more broadly now, there really is. I mean, this it's almost it's really weird. It's almost always the case. I don't want to say always the case because there are probably some rarefied conversations that are exceptions to the rule. But as a general matter, certainly in punditry and politics, when I hear people say something is settled science, they're saying it precisely because it's not settled. Either it's not politically settled or it's not scientifically settled, but they want to skip the stage of making the case that the, the scientists and the science that they listen to is correct, and they just want you to shut up. It's sort of the equivalent of, you know, the time for debate is over. When you say science has issued its verdict, you're saying we don't need to debate this point anymore. And I think there's something fundamentally sort of undemocratic about that, 
or illiberal about that. Um, not in every circumstance, right? I mean, I, I, it doesn't bother me very much if someone says the science on vaccines is settled. Um, and maybe this is just an inconsistency in, in, in my point of view, but I, I think it is largely settled. I certainly think, you know, um, the science of the internal combustion engine is settled, which is why no one ever talks about it being a settled science anymore. It's because it's actually settled. But if you take the long view of history, um, and I don't want to get all Thomas Kuhn-y and uh, the, what is it, the book? He, he's the guy who talked about the paradigms of science, but I'm forgetting the, the name of the book. You don't need to email, about, email me about it. I'm sure the second I stop talking and turn off the recorder, it'll come to me. But um, the history of science is really the history of settled science being unsettled. That's what science does is it constantly uh, revisits what seem to be closed questions in new and interesting ways. And sometimes stuff gets pocketed as, as established, and sometimes it's established for a very long time, and then it gets overturned by new facts and new data. And um, as I've said on here before, I'm largely convinced by the global warming stuff in terms of the fact that CO2 emissions and greenhouse gases are a problem. And it's a problem that we should deal with responsibly. And we don't need to get into that, into all of that, but I'm very much in the Matt Ridley school that doesn't, or the, the, um, beyond Lord Lomborg school that says it's something that we should treat, take seriously, but we shouldn't be apocalyptic about it because there are lots of other problems out there that get ignored because of the emphasis on, on climate change. Um, but even if you, even if you are a um, much more in the, it's an existential threat, it, we're, we're doomed as a planet if we don't deal with this um, camp, which I think is ludicrous, you know, the number of people who call it an existential threat when there is no science that says it is obviously an existential threat. It is, it's a problem that, you know, rising seas will be, would be very bad. It will not wipe out life on earth. And the people who call it an existential or a, a extinction level threat, which lots of them did in the Democratic primaries, they make it sound like it's a dinosaur killer asteroid, when really it's the kind of thing that we're going to have to deal with no matter what in terms of mitigation, management, uh, trimming at the edges, not um, as if it's we must avoid doomsday. Um, but even if you believe a lot of that stuff, that doesn't mean I have to buy your proposed solutions for how we deal with this stuff. That's just another version of, of uh, set, making the claim that the science is settled or that the science is spoken. The science can be absolutely 100% right about the nature of the problem, but science, the, the expertise of, of climatologists um, does not immediately lend itself to the economic and, and political and civil engineering questions about how you then deal with the problem. I can be a hundred percent right that there is a fire in my living room. That doesn't make me a hundred percent right about how, um, we should, uh, it should be put out, um, is sort of the point I'm trying to make. And I think again, more broadly, that one of the problems that we have in our age is that, uh, and this is a very, this is a very Eric Vigellen kind of point is that, um, as 
the traditional ultimate authority of of right and wrong goes away, which is namely God, essentially, um, we're desperately in search for a new source of authority that can fill its place. And for some people, I think that's the government. And for some people, I think that's science. And for some people, it's, you know, uh, the Reese's peanut butter cup um, combination of chocolate and peanut butter that is science and scientific government. That was that um, Neil deGrasse Ty- uh, Tyson, Dyson, I can never, Neil deGrasse Tyson, whatever, that guy, the guy who ruins movies for everybody that, you know, w- at least when he isn't paid to be a consultant to them. Um, uh, you know, he had this thing about how he wanted to create a republic of rationalia or something like that, which only followed scientific principles and scientific evidence as if a this was a new idea and b this wasn't an incredibly stupid idea um so anyway enough with the science stuff i wrote the g file today again which i i didn't love i i had a very busy morning cuz we had uh, one of the dogs went to the vet i had to go out to virginia to pick up a car cuz as a rite of passage my daughter who now drives put a dent in the rear on the in the back of it we had to get it fixed because the brake light was broken um and i just didn't have some great idea in me at least i didn't think i did but um i did have this one idea that i got actually from my conversation with jay norlinger after we stopped recording um uh jay and i who see eye to eye on a lot of the problems with the right these days and, and, um, and media these days and all of this stuff. And we have a common background because, you know, up until about two years ago, we were both at NR for two decades or so. Um, um, I was talking about how, about blogging and how I kind of missed the glory days of blogging. And, but then I had this, this weird kind of epiphany where, um, as part of my ongoing uh, personal inventory of where I went wrong over the last 20 years, it kind of just suddenly dawned on me that blogging actually contributed to a lot of the problems that we have today. And I don't want to paint with a hugely broad brush because I, I, there, there was a lot I loved about the, the golden age of, of, of blogging from about 2003 or four to uh, 2009. Um, uh, there were great arguments to be had. I'm very proud as the, that I'm the person who would, came up with the idea for the corner at National Review. Um, I think I've told this story before, but when I was the editor of NRO, Rich asked me, Rich Lowry, who's that was the real editor of the of National Review, um, he asked me to write a memo about I, you know, ideas to take the website to the next level. And Rich always takes credit because he's, he likes to say there were, um, 10 ideas and there were, there were like 10 or 11 ideas in it. And he plucked like the ninth one out, which was the corner and said, this is a good idea. And, um, my problem is, is that, um, neither of us can find the memo, but my argument, or at least my recollection was that all the ideas were really good, but this was the only one that, um, that caught Rich's fancy. And, um, you know, he wants to make it sound like it was, this is all joking. This is all a friendly thing, but he, he likes to make it sound like it was his editorial wisdom that found the, 
the needle in the haystack or the the, the pearls amidst, amidst the swine um, or the swine offal of um, my um, my suggestions. And my position is, is that, no, all the ideas were brilliant and he just didn't have the wisdom and foresight to see all the others. And I will say, it does bother me a little bit. You know, NR has this NR plus stuff, which um, I think is a good call. Um, I was arguing about 10 years earlier that we should do something like that. But that's just very minor, sour grapes, I guess. Um, so how did I get it? Oh, so blogging. The problem with blogging, and we can just stipulate a lot of good stuff in blogging. There's a lot of fun in blogging. The the Dan Rather Memogate stuff was one of the funnest, one of the most enjoyable times I had in journalism. And I wasn't at the forefront of that for you, you kids out there who are too young to remember, but Dan Rather was really sort of the dashboard saint of American journalism. And everyone was supposed to genuflect at him as if he was this, you know, uh, you know, the, the natural and true heir of Walter Cronkite, who himself was, I always thought overrated, um, but much better than a lot of the journalists we have today, just to be fair. Um, and, you know, Dan Rather was so eager to get George W. Bush, he um, bought onto this story about Bush being AWOL when he was in the Air National Guard. And I'm willing to give Rather credit that it he was presented with enough stuff that it was worth hunting down the story to see if it was true. The problem is, is that it turned out not to be true. And some of the stuff he got were these forged memos. And um, a handful of bloggers, uh, you know, sleuthed out that the fonts didn't exist back then. They couldn't have been written on a typewriter. Um, it was it was a great sort of journalistic true crime thing. And the way the me- the sort of establishment media responded to it as if like, sort of like, you know, Smithers in that episode of The Simpsons where um, Lisa Simpson points out that the nuclear power plant was mutating the fish and producing three-eyed fish and Smithers was planning, not Smithers, Mr. Burns, sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, don't come at me. Um, Mr. Burns, who owned the nuclear power plant, leaves dinner at the Simpsons house having had his uh, political aspirations to run for governor utterly destroyed and Burns says something along the lines of, to his assistant Smithers, Smithers, this band of slack-jawed yokels has destroyed any chance I have of seeking public office. And yet in this country, if I were to kill them, I would be the one to go to jail. And um, that was sort of how a lot of the elite media responded to uh, you know, these, uh, these bloggers in, as in pajamas, which was the famous phrase at the time. Um, how they took on Dan Rather. And um, that all this stuff was fun. There's a lot of blogging stuff that was great. There were a lot of arguments that were great. But part of the problem with blogging, we're just talking about the downside of it, was it was this radical acceleration in, in, for want of a better term, the news cycle. And when I say news, I mean really just sort of the media fire hose. You know, it can be, it can be hard news, but it can also be entertainment. It can also be punditry and commentary. Um, it radically accelerated um, the speed by which people, um, you know, uh, uh, habituated themselves to media consumption. 
And I mean, the internet was a big part of this, but the, but blogging really was the tip of the spear in a lot of ways. And what blogging did, you know, so like it used to be prior to the internet, you know, when I was in college and through most of the 1990s, um, most people, the vast, vast majority of people, even among news junkies, they got their news in the morning. Real news junkies got a lot of newspapers. My dad and my mom were real news junkies. And also because of my dad's job, we got a lot of newspapers. My dad <laughs> got out of jury duty because uh, during the voir dire thing or whatever, that's not voir dire, whenever, whenever, dur during the jury selection, they would ask my dad, you know, what newspapers do you read, if any, or what periodicals do you read? And my dad would say totally honestly, well, I read Time, Newsweek, U.S. News, The Economist. Um, I read the New York Times, The Washington Post, the L.A. Times, the New York Post, the New York Daily News, um, the L.A. Times when I can find it, uh, the New Yorker. And he would just list, you know, 25 different things that he got. And he didn't read all of them cover to cover, but part of it was his job. And part of it was that this was my dad's idea of recreation was to read all this stuff. And, um, but still... For most, and my dad was not a normal person, and neither was my mom in this regard, because they really were news junkies. Um, but even for news junkies, you got the paper in the morning, and then you basically didn't have news consumption again, you know, unless you listened to some like 1010 Winds um, radio station in your car, you know, from time to time, or maybe if you, in the early days, you listened to Rush. Um, but you really just didn't have news on your mind until the end of the day where either maybe you read the evening edition of a newspaper, which I'm old enough to remember those things. Um, or you turned on the nightly news, which was just one half hour. And then, you know, you were done, you know, real news junkies might watch CNN a lot, but even then, you know, CNN was a very different creature back then. So, um, the internet comes along and it accelerates this cycle massively. You know, when we were, when I launched NRO, we were considered, um, this, uh, you know, apocalyptic sign of the shrinking of the news cycle because we would run pieces in the morning and then again in the afternoon. And, you know, when I started the original G file, which was one of the first blogs, you know, I would respond to stuff I saw on TV that morning, which was just this new thing, um, back then. And, um, it made it difficult for politicians to figure out how to control their messaging because the messaging would change over the course of the day because the internet was changing how things rolled out. And, and it was, and anyway, so blogging comes along and the problem was, was that blogging, again, we're talking about the bad dynamics of it. Um, there was more demand for commentary for, you know, what I call in the G file today takes then there was actual supply of real newsworthy events to comment on. And this encouraged a sort of explosion in, in obsession with media criticism and the media and um, doing sort of deep textual analyses or really shallow textual analyses of not the news, but how the news was being talked about. Things got very, very meta, and there was a heavy, heavy emphasis on having what today is sort of called hot takes, although I have a different take on hot takes than other people do. Um, you know, you want to be contrary, 
you wanted to be smash mouth, you wanted to go after the messenger, you wanted to, you know, back then it was called fisking somebody where you tore apart their article. And so part of it was it encouraged this, this practice of being um, uh, sort of parasitic on mainstream media where, you know, I often like to joke that, you know, if the New York Times didn't exist, uh, conservatives have to invent it because we spend so much of our time talking about how the New York Times frames um, the news and commentary um, rather than the actual substance of the news and the commentary. And it's this just vitally important foil for a lot of people who, you know, sometimes have made whole careers, written whole books, just, you know, you know, obsessing about the New York Times. And I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. You know, I come from a New York Times obsessed childhood and, you know, and, and it, it, I get it to be sure, but it's, it's, it's reached a tipping point these days. And, um, and so you got this, you trained a whole generation of, of writers that think that real journalism is um, tearing apart other people's journalism rather than actually dealing with what politicians are, are doing or not doing um, or what, you know, uh, events on the ground are. And that became, that came, that, that tended to dominate blogging to a large extent. And, um, you know, Jay has this good line where he says, and I'm just paraphrasing because I can't remember it exactly, but Jay says, you know, when he talks to young writers, he says, you know, look, there are two kinds of writers. There are the kinds of writers who talk, who write about real things, news and events and ideas. And then there are the kinds of writers who talk about those kinds of writers. And we got a lot of the second kind these days. There's whole cottage industries dedicated to the second kind where it's, 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 you know, uh, you know, as a friend of mine likes to say, media criticism is the lowest form of journalism. Um, not because it's wrong necessarily, but because it's just so easy and, and really kind of lazy. And anyway, this form of, of, argumentative, contrarian, um, you know, attacking the messenger rather than dealing with the message stuff, um, became a, a whole ethos or a sub ethos for a lot of people. And I want to be fully honest. I was part of it. I did a lot of it. I still do some of it. I try to do less and less because I'm, I, I find that so much of the media criticism stuff these days is just an excuse to not deal with, you know, inconvenient realities that are more important. Um, you know, I say on here all the time that, you know, the people who think that the real story is how the New York times is using anonymous sources again, rather than the actual allegations about the anonymous sources. Um, um, and I'm not a fan of not anonymous sources necessarily. I'm, I'm, I'm not even necessarily, I'm not a fan of anonymous sourcing and I think it's way overused, but it's just a, it's a, it's a political and partisan shoot the messenger tactic rather than any sort of substantive thing and it's it's often just a kind of it's a variant of whataboutism and there's just way too much of that stuff out there and 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 it, in part because writers who blogged back then they made careers out of it they they um internalized that this is how you do your living um and again i'm guilty of a lot of this too i'm not trying to pretend otherwise um and um but more, more importantly is the market rewarded it. 
And not only did they reward it, but we've we educated a generation and a half of readers to um, look for this stuff. They enjoy it. It's more fun than actually trying to deal with complicated issues. Um, it's much more fun to sort of destroy some columnist or some reporter for overlooking something or whatever um, than to actually deal with a lot of the substance. And then along comes Twitter, which is basically which basically took this ethos, this approach, this orientation, and put it in a centrifuge and distilled it to an even purer form. So that now, I mean, at least with in the in the old days in blogging, you still had to make an argument. Um, and you know, and the thing is, this is the thing I should have mentioned in the G file. Part of this is a structural thing. No newspaper was going to run on paper a 400-word piece just attacking one op-ed. There's no room for that. So people, people prior to the age of blogging never read that kind of stuff because it, there was no real market for it. They might have heard some riff on a Sunday show about that kind of thing, maybe. Um, or maybe it would have been a couple paragraphs in someone's column. But, mo but most newspapers, and I've learned this from being a syndicated columnist and a columnist for the LA Times for almost 20 years, most newspaper editors don't want you writing about what other columnists are writing about. You know, they want you writing about real things. And so people didn't get a lot of this stuff before the age of blogging. And then in, but the, in the age of blogging, because there was essentially no um, scarcity of resources with ones and zeros the way there is with dead trees, people learned how to write short, punchy things, attacking the media, shooting the messenger, making fun of people. And again, guilty of it myself. And then, um, and then Twitter comes along and it takes that stuff and makes that stuff seem like, you know, um, uh, Oxford style debates compared to what we have on Twitter now, where now it's sort of like, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like that Seinfeld episode where they open the store that just sells the muffin tops. It took out the stumps of serious arguments and is just selling the sweet, sweet muffin top. and. Um, and that would be, to a certain extent, that would be fine if people actually knew what the stump was. Um, I quote, uh, my friend Jim Garrity, who said on Twitter the other day that one of the problems with a lot of conservatives is they, um, they take a 10 step argument and they just opine about the 10th step without acknowledging, you know, how they got there or whatever. I don't think that this is necessarily a terrible thing if you can answer the question of how you got to the 10th step, if you can actually make the argument for your position. But one of the things that Twitter encourages, you know, particularly with ass clowns of the sort of Matt Gatesian variety, is just giving the headline and actually having no knowledge about what would could possibly support that headline. You know, when I hear people on the left or the right, you know, tweeting and screaming on TV about socialism and all of these kinds of things, I'd have a lot more respect for them if they could actually make an argument for why Joe Biden is a socialist or why Joe Biden should be a show socialist. But instead, it's just the sound bites. It's just the bumper stickers. These people don't even know why they hold their own positions, never, never mind why they can defend them, because the culture that we live in now just supports the 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 most you know histrionic accusation or declaration and doesn't really care much about making the argument to to defend it 
And, you know, and I think that blogging was part of the evolution into all of this. And I know that this is interesting to dozens of you, um, but it was just, it was the only thing I kind of felt like writing about today. And now I'm really pissed at myself. I didn't make this structural point um, that I just made to you guys. Okay, on Wednesday, which uh, those of you who are members of the dispatch community know, I had my midweek uh, G-file, um, my mitvok epistle, and um, I did it on the Cuomo stuff, but really I did it about a sort of a larger point. I mean, we can talk about Cuomo for a second. Um, and I got to say, I want to revise my position a little bit in the G-file because I made the case that I didn't think he should necessarily resign or be impeached because of what he'd been alleged to do. But actually, after hearing some of these interviews, uh, yeah, he should resign. Um, I think it's a, um, you know, if, if what these people are saying is true, um, and I haven't really seen it denied. I mean, what, it, what they're, they're, they're not denying that it happened. They're, you know, just sort of playing games about saying if someone was offended by what he said, which is not a denial. Um, but it, so if the allegations are true, he should go. Um, and, uh, although I do think it's interesting, even though I believe these three women, uh, I don't believe all women. Um, I don't think that's a, that's a, that's a healthy statement to make in a democracy for obvious reasons. I don't believe, you know, Christine Blasey Ford and her allegations about Kavanaugh. Um, there's something very sort of dangerous and totalitarian about this idea that simply by virtue of the sex of an accuser that no evidence needs to be provided and you should just take someone's word for something. You should always listen. To, I see. I think you should listen to all women, but you know, there's a reason why we have due process in this country. There's a reason why, you know, we require, you know, providing, um, evidence to, you know, beyond the reasonable doubt in court for a lot of these things. And I just think it's a dangerous thing to say, believe all women. Um, but regardless, I believe these women, um, or at least I haven't seen any reason not to, though I do think it's kind of interesting that Cuomo, that there, that so far it sounds like Cuomo was, did this a lot where he propositioned young women in gross ways. Um, and it seems like so far he had zero success at it, which I think is a little odd. I mean, I, I don't want to put myself in the shoes of a 25 year old woman, but, um, uh, I would just kind of think that Cuomo would attract to him women, maybe they were too old for him, but would attract to him women that would be, you know, receptible, uh, uh, you know, receptive to his advances. And I'm just surprised that we haven't, that shoe hasn't dropped. Um, but, um, regardless, uh, I think what he did was gross and he should go. But the larger point I made in the Wednesday G file was about karma. Now, I don't believe in theological karma. I don't think there are, or even sort of various Catholic notions of, of karma about how, you know, or even pre-Catholic in terms of like the movie Gladiator, that what we do today ripples through eternity and all of these kinds of things. I'm not making a metaphysical or spiritual or theological point. I'm making a very practical point about how life works. Um, uh, you put bad stuff out into the world, you increase the likelihood that you'll, that bad stuff will happen to you. And, um, as I talked about in, in, on, in, on Wednesday, you know, some of the advice, I often give advice to people who just come to Washington, starting out their careers and that kind of stuff. AI often has me talk to interns tomorrow. 
I'm talking to a bunch of young um, uh, college kids who want to be conservative journalists for ISI. Um, and, you know, one of my standard, I have a whole bunch of advice and I think I covered a lot of it. I think we did a podcast. I'm pretty sure it was a podcast with Steve Hayward and Charles Murray. We did it as an event at AI and then we turned it into a episode of the remnant. You might want to go find it where it was just all advice for young people. And in Washington, you know, and to pursue these kinds of careers and that kind of stuff. Um, maybe there was more generic advice too. I can't remember at this point, but, um, you know, one of the pieces of advice I often give young people when they start out, and some of it is based on my own mistakes, is um, be careful who you pick as an enemy because they're going to be around probably for the rest of your career in Washington too. And they may be in a position to, um, if you screw them on a, over something stupid in your 20s, they may be in a position to screw you over something really important in their 30s. Um, but also more broadly and more generically, and sorry for the cursing, um, I tell people don't be a dick unnecessarily. And, you know, what I mean by that is be nice to people. And I mean that, you know, I, I think you know, when I tell my daughter this, I tell her this as a matter of right and wrong, first and foremost. Um, and I believe it passionately about that is be nice to people. Do be kind when you can be kind, when you're not being played for a sucker, when you're not being taken advantage of you know, and within reason about what you can do and all of these various things. But when in doubt, do favors for people when it's easy and it will help them and be polite to people, be generous where you can, when you can, and all that kind of stuff. Be a mensch. I'm a big believer in being a mensch. Um, and uh, I can't say that I've always, you know, lived by this perfectly. In fact, I know I haven't. Um, and I don't think anybody ever does uh, live by it perfectly, but I try and I try more as I'm getting older. And, um, but the point I'm making is sort of, it's a game theory point. It's sort of like that, uh, I once did this exercise. I was speaking at another student conference kind of thing. And, um, apparently there's this book, it's like 20 years old now. It's got like bees in the title and it's like queen bees and social butterflies or something like that. Anyway, it's been, it's been born out in like game theory and sociology and whatever. Um, but, and I did this exercise that was sort of part of this school of thought and it was you, we went around the room and, you know, and, and trust me, I hate doing exercises and anything involving trust falls and all that kind of garbage. But, um, I did it cause I was being paid and, 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 I wanted to be a team player for the guy who was organizing this thing. who was a good guy. And so, um, it was some sort of exercise where everybody started out with, um, a certain amount of points or something. And you were supposed to go around negotiating with people saying, I'll give you X amount of points. If you give me Y amount of points. And I can't remember all the hitches and stuff to it. But I figured out pretty quickly that the way to win the game was to go around giving everybody a better deal than you were taking for yourself and then making it up in volume. And so while people were haggling to get like 90 points to someone else's, you know, while only giving 10 points, I went around to everybody and said, I'll give you 60 points if you give me 40 points. And everybody took the deal because it was a good deal. And the reason I bring this up, and I don't know if anybody even understands the point I'm making here yet, so just forget all that. Um, 
The thing is, is if you go around just being nice to people, you're accruing social capital. You're accruing goodwill from people. And um, you never know when you're going to be in a situation where um, you might need to draw on that goodwill. Um, if, if you were charitable to people, if you forgave and forgot, um, if you, you know, you didn't go out to sort of tackle and punish people, um, unnecessarily, uh, people remember that. And, um, I remember, you know, I, I joke about this with Catherine Lopez all the time when I was the editor of NRO, I only was really, the, I think I've talked about this on here before, but, um, I was really only the hands-on day-to-day make the trains run on time kind of editor of that thing for, I don't know, a year and a half, two years. I was much more interested in writing. I hate reading submissions, um, particularly um, op-ed submissions. And don't take offense to this, writers who know me, who've sent me your stuff. Um, The dirty secret uh, for anybody who's handled submissions is that the vast majority of them are garbage. And so the writer friends that I'm talking about, I'm really not talking about them, but you got to do the due diligence and read the stuff that sent you. And it's really tedious. Um, and anyway, and it was just not in the comparative advantage of anybody for me to be doing that stuff because while I, I can do it, I think I'm actually a pretty good editor. Um, I'm not, I don't love it and I do love writing and it just made sense for me to spend more time writing than doing a lot of the sort of hands-on editing stuff. And, you know, I remember taking literally, I would get Larry Kudlow on speakerphone from his office and he would dictate his column to me and I would type it up. Um, and, uh, that wasn't the best use of my time or frankly, Larry's. Um, but anyway, the person who really ran thing for, ran the thing for a long time was Catherine Lopez and she was the managing editor of NRO or whatever her title was. And even though I held on to that title for years afterwards, every time I was on a panel or I was getting compliments for how great NRO was, I would say, great, thank you. I'm really proud of it. But I got to tell you, the real credit goes to Catherine because she's the one who makes that thing work. And one, it was moral, morally, it was the right thing to do because it was true and she deserved the credit. I got a lot of the glory because I was more of the front man and she was doing a lot of the, the, the nitty gritty work and not getting a lot of the glory for it. And I thought that was un, unfair. And, um, and she deserved at the very least, you know, praise from me. And it would be really, you know, dickish for me to say, oh yeah, it's all me. I've done it when I was really not, I was, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to say I was a figurehead because I had opinions about how to run things and people we should get to write about stuff and all that kind of stuff. But she was the one who made the thing work. And the funny thing about it, particularly in Washington, is that people assumed I was lying. People assumed that like, or a lot of people assumed that I was lying. It was like, oh, you know, that's really nice of him to, to say that. And, um, and, um, you know, they, they, they couldn't imagine, or a lot of people couldn't imagine that I was actually just sort of telling the truth. So I got credit for being humble and generous. Um, and I did the right thing. And, you know, and it's one of the reasons why Catherine put up with a lot of weird stuff from me for a long time is because, you know, I gave her the credit that she deserved. And I, my point is, is that you should do all that kind of stuff whenever you can, because let's put it this way. If Mario Cuomo, not Mario Cuomo, if Andrew Cuomo was a mensch, all his life and he was decent to people all of his life and he didn't berate and humiliate people all of his life or his office political career. 
Um, there'd be far fewer people coming out of the woodwork saying, I believe these accusers. There'd be far fewer people coming out of the woodwork to tell stories about what a jerk he's been. Um, and that's what I mean by karma is you start accumulating bad will and people will come after you. And, you know, and I think this, it, 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 and alas, it's not an iron law of the universe. That's why I don't believe in the sort of mystical version of karma. It's a rule of thumb. There are people who will go to their bed having gotten rich, being corrupt jackwads. And that makes me sad. And I like to think that maybe history will, you know, compensate by exposing that. But often not, you know. Um, you know, Arlen Specter was an unbelievable jerk to his own staff. He was cruel to his own staff. I don't think he ever had more than um, uh, a chief of staff that lasted more than 18 months. And he was in government for, I don't know, what, 25, 30 years? I was once at a book signing and in Philly, and a lady came up to me to get the book signed. And, and she said, oh, I love that column you wrote about Arlen Specter. And I said, oh, thanks. And she said, yeah, I, I work for him. I was like, you do? And he said, yeah, he's a jerk. And I was like, really? And I started asking her questions about it. And I didn't have a lot of time to talk because, you know, it was a line to sign books. But she, she was like, yeah, hold on, Phyllis. And she called over some friend and she says, I was telling him that, you know, Arlen's a jerk. And I don't think she used the word jerk. And Phyllis was like, oh my God, I've worked for the guy for 20 years. He's such an a-hole, blah, blah, blah. And they started telling me stories about what a, what a jerk he was. He, you know, after he switched to the Democratic Party to run again, and he lost his last election. He forced all of these people to sort of betray their party to support him because they thought he was this good guy. They worked for him. They hustled for him. And when he lost, he refused to go down to the ballroom where all of the supporters were waiting and even thank them. He just got on the freight elevator, went downstairs and went home and left all those people hanging. Um, Anyway, my point is there are a lot of people in Washington who get away with that stuff for a long time, and that makes me sad, and I wish they paid prices earlier and more clearly for their actions. But this all came up because uh, John Podoritz on the Glop podcast recently was talking about how he kind of was trying to work out his conscience about feeling sort of cheated that um, Andrew Cuomo was going to go down for the Me Too stuff and not for the actions that he took about old age homes and, and covering up COVID deaths and all that kind of stuff. And my response was, you know, you got to have more, more of a dynamic scoring, speaking of Larry Kudlow, more of a dynamic scoring attitude about this in that, you know, you, uh, you may get away with the bad thing that you really deserve to be punished for, but the actions that led you to do, you know, bad thing A are also the kind of thing that make it more likely that you get punished for bad thing B. And, you know, I wish, for example, that Donald Trump went, you know, got impeached, got removed, convicted and removed um, both for both impeachments. Um, I would have liked it if he left office as a disgrace and repudiated by the Republican Party. And it breaks my heart in a lot of ways that the cult of personality lives on. But he garnered an enormous amount of ill will in the world for the for all sorts of actions, including the things that he did for impeachment. And that creates a political climate where it is in the interests of a lot of people to go after him for other things. And that does not, you know, bother me in the slightest. If, you know, under a normal circumstance, maybe a prosecutor in New York would say, you know, look, this is tacky to go after an ex-president. We should just, for the name of sake of social peace, let's leave him alone. 
But because of Trump's actions, he has invited a political environment that makes it almost impossible for any politically ambitious Democratic prosecutor to do anything other than, you know, throw the book at him. And it doesn't bother, you know, look, again, I wish the people, you know, at Fox News and elsewhere who peddled the, the you know, all sorts of craziness for the last four years lost their jobs for some of that stuff. But the fact that the Dominion lawsuit is the thing that cost Lou Dobbs his job, I'll take it, you know, because that's the karma of it is, is that, you know, you, it's a numbers game. And the more you, the more dickish you are for the longer the period of time, the more you increase the odds that it's not going to work for you at the end of the day. And um, um, and that kind of karma I, I believe in and and I, I think is very real. Um, since we're on Cuomo, let me just finish one other thought. So I, I, I told you I was on special report the other night and um, uh, it was a crazy news day. So basically it was just a quick lightning round kind of panel kind of thing, which was kind of a bummer because I haven't been on in like six weeks. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, on the panel was, uh, what is her name? Morgan Ortegas, um, who was, um, she was like a Fox pundit for a while, a long time ago, I think. And then she was uh, Pompeo's press secretary or spokesman, or I think that's it, press secretary or press or, or spokesman um, in the Trump administration. And um, um, and Harold Ford was on, and of course he said, "Thank you for having me." That's sort of his tagline now. You should have that trademark. Um, I like I like Harry Ford. I think he's fundamentally a decent guy. Um, and for all I know, Morgan Ortega is a perfectly decent, she, I, I, I don't have any like dirt on her. I don't think she's a bad person or anything like that. Um, but this sort of gets sort of at the heart of this thing I harp on about how, which I've been saying for five years now, um, you know, I often say uh, to unrepentant Trump supporters, you know, what are some, what, what are the Democrats going to do that you're, that you're going to criticize when they're in power, that you won't be hypocritical for criticizing since you supported it when Trump, in the case of Trump. And I usually mean that in the context of like policy stuff. Um, uh, you know, the, 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 the checks that are going out to people for COVID, a lot of, a lot of Republicans supported it when Trump was in favor of it. And now they're against it because Biden's doing, I mean, that kind of stuff, you know, I don't want to get deep in the policy weeds and all that. But there are other examples of it. And so on Special Report, we were talking about Andrew Cuomo. And he it was the day he um, issued his, pre- had his press conference and his sort of weak tea apology. And he said, you know, I never touched any women inappropriately. And Ortega's made the perfectly legitimate point, perfectly legitimate point, um, that... Uh, we know from the photos alone that that's not entirely true because there's that picture of him, you know, holding that, that young woman's face and, and, and she's looking like, um, you know, some sort of like alien prehensile mouth is going to come out of his own mouth and bite her. And, um, and he, and she says again, legitimately as a woman, you know, men in power touching your face and propositioning you, is uncomfortable and inappropriate. And, you know, maybe I should have said something along these lines, but I was so, oh, and so then, so then, <laughs> um, you know, Brett asked me, well, sorry, I'll get to that in a second. 
so like she says this thing about Cuomo touching her, touching this young girl inappropriately and how that's bad. And, you know, uh, and you know, there's discrepancies in power and it's inappropriate and all this kind of stuff. And I so desperately wanted to shout, how about when they grab women by the, you know what, right? I mean, the allegations against Andrew Cuomo, which are bad, and I've said he should resign and that, you know, it should certainly end his career. Um, they pale in comparison to the allegations about Trump's behavior with women. Admittedly, not while in office, which is fair, but, um, you know, this idea that uh, conservatives are going to be suddenly super pure about Me Too stuff and sexual harassment stuff when it comes to Democrats, um, while having expressed zero opposition to Donald Trump and the accusations that he's raped people, that he bragged about physically accosting people and, um, you know, in grabbing them in, you know, in, in ways far worse than grabbing someone's face. Uh, uh, it just, I, it's one of these reasons why I'm so detached from the normal conservative Republican punditry stuff, because, uh, I no longer think that like, you know, as, you know, that conservatives have um, the standing to make those kinds of arguments. And then, so then Brett asks me about, um, you know, while I was sitting there fuming, wondering if I was selling my soul by not, you know, interjecting um, on that, Brett asked me about how Democrats are all in for the Me Too stuff when it comes to Cuomo, but they disregarded the Tara Reid allegations against Joe Biden. And I had to mention, and I completely buttered the answer, but I had to mention, you know, that, that's, a, that's a standard that applies, you know, the, that's a standard that Republicans shouldn't be bringing up given, you know, their defense of, of Donald Trump. Um, and, uh, you know, yes, there's hypocrisy there, I suppose, and inconsistency to be sure. Um, but I just, I, I can't take sanctimony and outrage from Republicans about that kind of stuff if they were utterly unwilling to, um, condemn Donald Trump for far worse accusations and to belittle the idea that any of those accusations should be taken seriously. And I guess, all right, so again, we're running out of time, but I promised a reader I would tell one story and I did want to get to something else. So I listened to, some of you may recall last week I wrote this thing about the Scott Alexander piece and about Bill Crystal, and almost all the feedback I've gotten has been about the Bill Crystal part of it, which is fine. Um, and I, I don't want to leave it all in the, in the green room, as it were, by talking about all of it here, because I do want to have Bill on. And we're going to talk about it. But I did listen to the Matt Lewis um, conversation with, uh, with Bill, and I thought it was great. Matt Lewis is a, is a great interviewer. He's a really decent guy. We're largely on the same page about stuff. And, um, and he wrote a good piece sort of talking about this this disagreement in a, in a very small circle of, of the sort of anti-Trump, right? And, um, and if you recall, my basic argument was, is that I don't see myself as a, uh, as a political actor the way Bill has always seen himself as a political actor. And, um, and I'm very skeptical of this idea of anti-Trump Republicans or anti-Trump conservatives sort of taking a, a sort of 
pro-Biden or Biden-aligned um, position. And anyway, so Bill explained his position very well on the Matt Lewis thing. And I think that we both are in violent agreement about a lot. Um, and I should be clear again, I, I like Bill a lot. I have a lot of respect for Bill. Um, he's, a, he's a mensch, for sure. Um, and, um, but he kind of was making a lot of my points in his conversation with Matt Lewis, where he was saying how, you know, he's involved in politics. He's involved in helping politicians raise money and create PACs and picking candidates and all these kinds of things. I'm not involved in that. That's just not my lane. And, um, I, I think it's a little, a little weird how Bill doesn't completely understand this distinction, or at least from the way he talks about it. Um, but he's also very generous about it. He says nice things about me and he says, you know, people have to make their own choices and people can have, um, have different approaches to this. And I think he's absolutely right about that. And he's absolutely right about, about a really basic point is that it basically boils down to your, um, threat assessment about what's going on. And that, and then once you figure out what you think the threat is, how do you think you should respond to it? And for Bill, he thinks that Donald Trump and the, the Trumpy deformed GOP um, are a fundamental threat to democracy. Democracy is really important. And so uh, anti-Trump people should at least consider, um, again, he didn't really make a forceful argument for this. He did this thing, which he's very good at, is sort of starting a debate. He raised the question and then invited people to offer their answers to it. And I offered one. Um, um, in my G file last week and that's all fine. And he, he thinks that, you know, the threat boils down to Trump is authoritarian, that he has, uh, transformed the GOP into being, um, contemptuous of democracy or a quasi authoritarian, or at least forgiving of authoritarianism and still opens the idea that Trump should be back in power one day. And he thinks that that is, um, the near enemy, the most pressing danger, and people should act accordingly. And then he has recommendations about what acting accordingly looks like. All fine, all fair. Um, the problem I have is, um, well, I have a bunch of problems. I don't want to go through all of them here. But um, part of my problem is that this argument, well, let me do it this way. Here's Charlie Sykes, another guy I like a lot. Um, good guy. Um, he, uh, um, he had a conversation with Tim Miller earlier this week, um, on his podcast and they, they talked about the, um, the crystal piece and then my response to it. And, um, I'll, let me just play you this audio of, of of this little snippet but but i'd forgotten until i saw it in a bill crystal email he he used the word he's he's writing about he's got a by the way he's got a fantastic piece in the bulwark today where he talks about uh, the facts of life and it's it's kind of a follow-up to his piece saying hey if we're going to save democracy maybe we should work with the pro-democracy people even if they're democrats if in fact we're facing uh, authoritarian fascism, maybe we ought to ally with whoever is also going to oppose authoritarian fascism. And he got a lot of blowback uh, on that from people who said <laughs> that we conservatives cannot do that. We cannot take sides. We need to be we need to just speak truth 
um, whatever that is, and not do what Bill Crystal is doing and actually align with people who are defending democratic values and things like that. So he wrote this really good response. And okay, so here's my problem. Um, first of all, I didn't need the, I mean, look, let me be fair and let me be honest. I'm assuming he was referring to me in that little bit because this thing about telling the truth was the crux of, of my argument, which I couched clearly and explicitly as a personal choice of my own. And I wasn't speaking for other people. I wasn't saying that everybody had to follow my advice or follow my path. But I was saying that for me, I am not interested in getting caught up in the game and strategizing about how to um, form alliances and coalitions and all of that kind of stuff. I would much rather be, um, you know, secure in my um, crapulence and my misanthropy and, um, and criticize whoever I want to criticize and praise whoever I want to praise. I can offer analysis and I can make suggestions and all that kind of stuff, but I don't want to put on a partisan team hat in any way. And I just don't want to for reasons I've talked about ad nauseum. You know, this is why I have this pinned tweet on my Twitter profile from Alexander Solzhenitsyn who says, you can resolve to live your life with integrity. Let your credo be this. Let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph, but not through me. That's, that has sort of been my, you know, serenity now, um, personal mantra and reassurance during a lot of this stuff is that I just wasn't going to get swept up in popular front mentality partisanship one way or the other. Um, and so even if Charlie wasn't referring to me and wasn't sort of, you know, doing the podcast equivalent of subtweeting me, the position that he mocked is my position. And I think that this sort of gets at part of my point to say, tell the truth, whatever that is, with a sort of mocking kind of laughing scorn sort of gives away part of the game here. Um, you know, Telling the truth is telling the truth. And I don't think you have to be super clever or get really meta about that. And that doesn't mean I have a monopoly on the truth, but telling the truth as I see it is as close as any of us will get in the Plato's cave that we all live in to telling the truth. And that doesn't mean I'm not open to, you know, to correction. I'm, you know, I'm open to, you know, notions of Okshadian doubt and skepticism and certainly enlightenment based notions of reason where I can be persuaded that I am wrong. But, um, telling the truth as you see it is always its own defense. And it may not be a sufficient defense. Like you don't want to say, you know, you, you don't want to tell insecure, ugly people how ugly they are. You know, that's fine. But you don't have to lie either. You just don't talk about that kind of stuff. There's all sorts of, you know, as, as Bill would be the first to concede, there are all sorts of like prudential ways about dealing with these things where you're not lying and you're trying your best to tell truths as they matter. And that's just the lane that I, I want to stay in. And um, the, the, but the, re so the real problem that both, with my, uh, my real objection that both Bill and Charlie state quite clearly is they are very clear. They think Trump and now the post-Trump GOP are maybe not an existential, but a, a, a serious, real, tangible threat to democracy. 
And therefore, they think it's important to align with the people um, who are defending democracy. And Bill's very nuanced about this in the Matt Lewis um, conversation. And again, I think we agree on almost everything. We just come to prudential different positions. But when I hear Charlie talk like that, and to be honest, when I hear Bill talk like that, you know what I hear echoes of? As I hear echoes of the uh, Flight 93, it's a binary choice um, nonsense that I've been complaining about for five years from the right. Um, you know, I think, you know, the catastrophism, the, uh, the Michael Anton nonsense, the, the way Hannity would begin his radio show in the lead up to the 2016 election saying, um, we're just 17 days away from the potential end of America. Um, all of this stuff about how if Hillary Clinton were elected president, America would be over, which we heard again from people in 2020 about Joe Biden. It'll be the end of America. We'll have socialism. Cats will sleep with dogs. We'll all have to eat flan for dessert, whatever it was. We heard all of this kind of stuff. It's a binary choice. It doesn't matter what your objections are to Trump. You're either for freedom in America and have your head and your head and your heart wired together for some full tilt boogie for freedom and justice, or you're a socialist who wants to let the Chinese eat off your tray in the gulag. Right. And that kind of catastrophism was one of the things that ruined the right in a lot of respects. And that's I hear echoes of that in this stuff about how you have to align with Democrats and find common cause with Democrats because the Republicans are an existential threat to democracy and that therefore you have to overlook other differences. And again, Bill's very nuanced about this in the conversation with Matt Lewis. And I don't think that that. Charlie necessarily believes the full front, you know, the, the full version of his sort of snarky uh, summary of, of what I wrote. But I hear that from both of them, you know, often. They believe it. They believe that, you know, the, the nature of the threat from Trump and the Trumpist GOP is such that it's at least worth thinking about aligning with the quote-unquote pro-democracy party. And the thing, there are two problems with that. One is I got no problem aligning with anybody on the right or the left who's in favor of democracy, you know, rightly understood, yada, yada, yada. Um, um, and whether they're Democrats or Republicans or conservatives or Trumpists, you know, whatever. I mean, if, if, if someone says two plus two is four, I don't need to know what party they belong to. I will agree with them and I will stand up for them. If they say the constitution matters and the constitution, you know, should be, um, upheld, I will agree with them regardless of whether or not they think, you know, we should have socialized medicine. That's all fine. But the second problem is, is that on the narrow issue of, and it's not a narrow issue in the sense that it's an illegitimate or, or trivial or insignificant issue. I think this is a really important issue and they're right to be concerned about the way Trump tried to steal the election. I don't think, you know, given the 40 things I've written about how Trump tried to steal the election and that was outrageous and how he should be impeached and convicted and that this was a travesty. Um, I don't need convincing about that. And I don't need convincing about what a, what a show CPAC was. Um, I sold, but you know, what's more important than democracy is liberalism in the classical liberal sense is free and open debate is a free society. 
You know, uh, my ancestors on the shtetl used to say the best form of government is the good czar. The problem is, is that the worst form of government is the bad czar. Um, and the reason I bring that up is that I, I can imagine a universe where you have some Solomonic king who defends liberty, defends property rights, defends um, all of the things in the Bill of Rights that we think are incredibly important and, and more. But we don't get to vote. That would not break my heart. I don't, I don't fetishize voting the way some people do. I'm not, I'm not trying to say voting isn't important. The reason why voting is important is because the good czar form of government cannot be sustained. You're, if, you, if you have a, czar form of gov- a czarist form of government, eventually you get nothing but bad czars. And the thing about democracy is that it's a prudential thing is that it prevent democracy with all of the sort of Lockean and Montesquieu and, and founding fathers, you know, checks and balances stuff, which I talk about all the time. Democracy in that sense is the best form of government because it's a hedge against the worst forms of governments, not because democracy produces the greatest results. And anyway, I didn't mean to get into a big theoretical thing about democracy. My point about that, about bringing it up is, is that when we talk about democratic values, we talk about more than just voting. We talk about free speech. We talk about freedom of assembly. We talk about property rights. We talk about, um, you know, all of the personal liberties that make freedom and democracy meaningful as a lived experience, the rule of law. Um, and I wrote a book called Suicide of the West, for Pete's sake. Um, I think those things are under threat and they very much are under threat from Trump and from Trumpism. Again, stipulated. They're also under threat from big chunks of the left. They're under, you know, cancel culture is as liberal as anything else. I mean, that doesn't mean every example of cancel culture is necessarily evil and terrible. Some people should be canceled because some people are evil and terrible. But, um, Broadly speaking, you know, the, the, the left is more in favor of censorship today than the right is. The left is more antagonistic to, um, uh, you know, free enterprise. It's more antagonistic to property rights. It's, um, it's definitely more antagonistic to freedom of conscience. There are all sorts of things that it, that it is um, opposed to. And I'm not doing a both sidesism thing. What I'm saying is, is that I don't see why as a practical matter, I should get caught up in some game about, and I'm not saying it's an, it's an unimportant game. I wish, I wish Bill and Tim Miller and all of those guys, all the luck in the world, if they can create a moderate Republican wing of the Democratic Party that pulls the Democratic Party rightward towards the center and helps uh, heighten the contradictions of what a, you know, craptacular husk the current GOP is and forces it to change its ways, go for it. Do it. I will write columns that are friendly about it. That's not my point. I am not, you know, Bill made it sound like I have this sort of, you know, team loyalty to the conservative movement thing as if um, I just can't let go of it. I, I just, I don't think there's a lot of evidence um, in the record or in what I wrote to support that. Um, what I'm saying is, is that I have a, I have a role that I want to play that I think is important. I think that a lot of the problems that we have aren't just about 
Trump trying to steal elections, as bad as all that is. They had to do with the stuff I was talking about, how Twitter is ruining, you know, political discourse and, and discourse generally. It has to do with, you know, uh, wanting to make, force nuns to use birth control. And um, so, again, I will take the side of Democrats if they are standing up for democracy all the live long day. But the way they stand up for democracy has a lot of flaws to it, too. And because I'm not part of any popular front effort, I don't see why I should tack my sales in any way to make, you know, adjustments for any of that. And Bill, again, in all honesty, is, and, and sincerity, isn't really making that argument. He's not saying that I should do that or other people should do that. He says everyone should make their own choice and all that. But um, the, the practical upshot of trying to create a Republican wing or, you know, a moderate conservative wing of the Democratic Party of necessity, once you get into that business, means shaving off parts of what you think is important for the greater good of your side. And um, I want free and fair elections for the rest of the, you know, our, until the sun burns out. All in favor of that. And I will lend rhetorical and analytical support to all of that as best I can. But it doesn't mean I need to, um, uh, you know, see myself as a political operator. And, and, and that's my point. And, you know, you look at, you know, um, Jen Rubin the other day wrote a column saying uh, conservatism is utterly meaningless and devoid of anything and, and is just, um, you know, a Trojan horse for racism and badness and Trump and blah, 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 blah. I don't believe that about conservatism. I might have some sympathy for some of that about people who, some people who call themselves conservatives, some people who, um, you know, want to redefine what conservatism is to make it susceptible, vulnerable to some of those criticisms. But, you know, as Jay and I were talking about, I'm just not quite there yet to say I want to let go of a perfectly honorable and decent word simply because of what, how it's being used in partisan politics. And, you know, uh, as Jay pointed out, Hernand, I think it was Hernando de Soto said, you shouldn't die for a word. So again, it's a prudential question. Eventually, if the Groypers and um, the Trumpists are the only people left calling themselves conservatives, I guess I'll stop using the word conservative, but I don't think we're there yet. And in the meantime, I'd rather help build up um, a media business that is an antidote to these problems on the right and on the left and in the mainstream media and make the arguments that I want to make and do the things that I want to do. And so anyway, I'll talk, I hope Bill says he'll come on the remnant and we'll, we'll hash all this stuff out. And I don't want to start some stupid podcast war or blog war or, or Twitter war or whatever with Charlie and any of this kind of stuff. Um, all I'm saying is, is that, that I don't think my position deserves scorn and giggling. Um, I am very proud of my position. I will defend my position. And um, I'm not the one resorting to sort of, you know, catastrophizing arguments about how it's a binary choice and um, there's no room for a nuanced middle. That's Steve Schmidian garbage. And Steve Schmidt is a perfect example of how uh, politics can be corrupting. I don't think it would corrupt Bill. I think Bill's got a man of a lot of integrity. I do think utterly corrupts a lot of people and it corrupts 
pro-Trump people and it corrupts anti-Trump people. And the second you think all political arguments and all principled arguments are secondary to practical political considerations aimed at making affecting change in the next election, you're at least on the path down to that kind of corruption. And you can stop well short of it before you're getting corrupt. But I'm just not interested in kind of walking down, let me put it this way, because obviously I care about elections and I'm going to write things about elections and all that kind of stuff. I just don't want to walk nearly as far down that road as some other people do. All right. So I know it's gone really long, but I got this great email from a listener who responded to my request for um, suggestions of evergreen uh, topics. Uh, because I'm going to be traveling and we want to put some in the can. There's not a lot of time left for me to do that, but I'm working on it. Um, and part of it was how he wanted to hear me talk about dinner at Christopher Hitchens, which apparently I did some shaggy dog story where I never really, I just hinted at it and I never really told the story. So I know we're long, so I'll give a very short version of it right here. So Christopher Hitchens, um, used to live brilliant writer, um, who was, um, I got to say something of a mutant, um, insofar as he had, despite the fact, and I, I, I'm not trying to slander the guy. This is not a secret. He had a very serious drinking problem. Um, and, uh, and yet he had like this superpower where not only could he write, I want I don't want to say he was drunk. Just, he could write having consumed vast amount of alcohol brilliantly and not just sort of stylistically, but with uncanny recall for historical stuff in a first draft. He could pound out. I remember he wrote this piece about this famous Talmudic scholar who was also a Marxist, I think for the Atlantic or something that, you know, it was like 6,000 words and he wrote it, um, like in one sitting and, um, uh, you know, and it doesn't mean I agree with Hitchens on a lot of things. He, I think he, he had, he had real problems with, he wasn't anti-Semitic by any stretch of the imagination. I, I, I shouldn't say by any stretch of the imagination. There are people who thought he was anti-Semitic. I didn't. He had a problem with religion. Um, a real problem with religion that in his later years manifested, that mo- manifested itself mostly about Islam, not about Judaism. But there was something of the old Marxist atheist in him that you could push buttons in him and he could come out saying weird stuff. And I was actually once at a dinner, a Shabbat dinner at Peter Beinart's house, um, where something set him off about Israel. And this was when Peter was much more pro Israel. Um, and I sat there in stunned silence, listening to talk for a very long time um, about Zionism, this and whatever that. And eventually Peter was like, I just think it's really amazing that you, you want to have this conversation at a Shabbat dinner. Um, anyway, so my point isn't about the Jews. It's not about anti-Semitism or any anti-Semitism or anything like that. Um, but, uh, anyway, so we lived in the same building. We had mutual friends. Uh, he had, he was sort of friendly with my parents at one point and, um, and, but we had been in the same building it was this building, the Wyoming amazing building, um, sort of just above DuPont circle, just on the edge of Adams Morgan. I don't know technically 
and just across the street from Kalarama. I, I don't know technically which neighborhood it's officially in. It's just above the Hinkley Hilton, if you know that Hilton. Um, it's called, we used to call it the Hinkley Hilton because that's where Reagan was shot. Anyway, he, uh, finally after six months of us living in the, in this building, um, he invited us up for a much delayed sort of, uh, welcome to the building, uh, dinner. And, um, I was excited to go. His brother, Peter was coming to town. He wanted us to meet him. And so Jessica and I, and then a fairly young Cosmo went upstairs to the seventh floor and he had this amazing house, amazing apartment. Um, the bones of the apartment were just astounding. It was like one of these uh, sort of out of the Mad Men era kind of apartments. It was really, or even earlier, I guess, maybe even pre-war. It was this beautiful apartment on the seventh floor. Um, fantastic view. And, but the apartment itself was weird um, in terms of the decor. Um, a lot of mismatched furniture, including, I believe, like some beach chairs next to some like plush leather chairs. And there was a grand piano and lots of books stacked up on the wall on their, on, you know, on their sides. And, um, at one point, I think somewhat for, you know, understandably Cosmo decided to pee in the apartment. And so just took him back downstairs. And, um, anyway, I brought a bottle of, uh, Balvany scotch as a sort of a housewarming thing, you know, say thank you for having us to dinner. And, um, Christopher, um, um, you're not supposed to call him Chris. You got very snarky about that. I uh, call him Hitch or Christopher, but not Chris. Um, he, you know, was very, you know, cordial about it. And he said, thank you. And, um, but he wasn't drinking any of it, but he served it for us. And I was like, you know, I didn't bring it here for us. I brought it here for you. And he was like, no, no, don't worry about it. And he brought out two glasses and it was just all very strange. One glass was like one of those tiny little aperitif glasses, you know, like, um, like, like a quarter would fit through the opening, but maybe not a half dollar kind of thing. A little tiny, like postprandial, you know, port kind of thing. And the other one was this enormous brandy snifter that you could see some one at a piano bar putting on the piano for tips. And he gave my wife the brandy snifter, which had, I don't know, about 10, you know, thimbles worth of volume to it. And he gave me the giant, um, uh, uh, glass, snifter glass, whatever. And the thing is the glass he gave me was filthy. Um, it looked like maybe someone had been drinking milk out of it at a kid's pizza party, but whatever. I didn't want to, you know, I was young and he was Christopher Hitchens and, and alcohol kills germs. And so whatever. And he, he girl, 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 poured a, poured a bunch of it in there. This was like a Wednesday night, mind you. Meanwhile, Hitch was drinking out of basically a milk glass. Um, you know, a big tall glass with, um, and he was drinking Johnny Walker and seven up and, uh, and he was going through them. And anyway, uh, Peter Hitchens, his flight was delayed. It took a long time and we're drinking more and we're talking and blah, 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 blah. And, um, and then, uh, uh, we were finally like, Hitch is like, let's just sit down to dinner and he'll join us in the middle because he was cooking this rack of lamb and it couldn't stay in the oven or sit any longer. And it was a beautiful rack of lamb. It was a wonderful dinner. He's actually, a really, was actually a really great chef and our cook, whatever. And so we sit around this great 
kitchen table in the kitchen, you know, it was a big enough kitchen in an apartment that you could have a big sort of entertaining kitchen table. And um, we're sitting there and I notice, you know, he brings out the bottle of scotch that I brought and like Jess and I have put a pretty significant dent in it, maybe almost half a bottle. And, and then I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm embarrassed by this. You know, I didn't come here to drink, you know, you know, all this stuff. I brought it for you. And he was like, no, no, no. He sort of misunderstood my point. And he was like, no, 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 no. Don't think of, don't think any of it, anything of it. Besides, I've been drinking these as he poured himself another tall glass of mostly Johnny Walker with a, you know, more than a splash, but not much more than a splash of, of Sprite or seven up or whatever it was. Um, he says, and don't think of it. I'm just, I'm sticking with this because this is what I've been drinking all day and I don't want to switch. And given how much booze I saw him drink, um, just since I got there, uh, it was staggering. And yet he was perfectly lucid. Um, I mean, there may be some slurring every now and then, but I was probably slurring a lot more. Um, but he was perfectly lucid, still had unbelievable recall. And, you know, and then eventually his brother came and he was, his brother was a bit dour. And we had a nice dinner. We drank, I don't know, a couple bottles of wine. And, um, and then Jess and I said, thank you very much. You know, good night. And, and Hitch was like, you know, it was great to have you here. Um, I'm going to have like one more drink and then I got to go work on this piece that's due in the morning. And it was about some bizarre esoteric subject. And, you know, Hitch is the best example of this, of anybody I met in Washington. The only one who really comes close was, was is Michael Barone, who had this photographic memory and could recall things um, that he read once 20 years ago at his fingertips with like near perfect recall. And Hitch had that too. And it was, and, but the amazing thing about, about Hitch is that um, a lot of people who have that kind of, you know, eidetic memory of, I guess you're supposed to call it now. Um, they tend not to be f amazing stylists precisely because they don't need to be. I have this theory that one of the things that, you know, helps you develop a writing voice is to, is a need to sort of, um, you know, sort of BS your way through something by, uh, you know, by dazzling people with, with, with how you say stuff. And, um, and, I, and, you know, I'm not saying I do that as a journalist now or as a writer now, but I'm saying, although some G files, you might think that's the case. Um, but like in high school, like the, at least for me, this is how I got through high school and college to a large extent, particularly high school. I was more serious as a student in college, but in high school, you know, I wouldn't do my homework or I, or I do my homework on the bus. Um, I wouldn't have done the reading or whatever, but I could write my way around stuff in ways that I think helped me learn how to be a good writer. And the people I've known who have this sort of total recall of the material, um, they never develop that need for the most part. And, you know, and some people, I mean, Michael Rome was a perfectly good writer, but he was a very straightforward writer. Hitch was, you know, was more than just a good writer in the sense of making good arguments. He was a, he was a writer who knew how to entertain the reader in ways that very few others did. And the fact that he did this while being essentially pickled for most of his career, as far as I could tell, was just sort of astounding. Anyway, that was the story I have been hinted at before. I hope I haven't slandered anybody. Um, you know, the, Washington is, anybody who knew Hitchens has a story about Hitchens and 
and drinking and all that kind of stuff. He's from an earlier age. I have similar of those kinds of stories about, you know, certainly about my mom, which maybe one day I'll tell. Um, and uh, other than that, thanks for listening. I uh, apologize for rambling on so much, but um, I'm, again, overcompensating. And I'll see you next time.